0: Well, good morning, Grace family. My name is Tim Cockrell. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I look forward to that opportunity. It's my privilege to serve as senior pastor here, and we've been here for a total of two weeks. And uh, we have loved getting to know many of you and beginning to learn names and hear stories. And so if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I look forward to that opportunity. And uh, I know it's going to take a little while for us to learn everybody's names and hear everybody's stories, but just know that's my desire is that as a pastor, as an elder, uh, as a shepherd of this flock, I want to know the sheep. And so I pray that as God gives us opportunity, that we would be able to knit our lives together and share what God has done in your life and what God is doing in our church. Well, if you're not already there, I encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 19 as we look at Jesus' words. And I think it's interesting that my very first sermon last week, I got to cover the topic of church discipline. And then this week, I get to cover divorce. You know, we're, we're not starting with the easy topics, are we? But I want to suggest to you, we're starting with some very important topics. Because these are so eminently practical and pastoral. That I pray, even as we study what God's word has to say to us in this text, that you would also hear my pastor's heart. Because... If you have gone through a divorce or have had parents who have gone through a divorce, there's there's a deep wound that is there. And we as a church are called to be a community of grace in which there can be healing and growth and strength. And I was just talking to somebody after the the first service who had been through a divorce in the past, and they were sharing very transparently that there's a sense in which sometimes they feel marginalized, in which they feel less than. And so I pray that as we study this text this morning, God will give us clarity, because we want to address this important topic with both clarity and compassion, because that's the way Jesus does it. Well, I'm not typically much of a statistics person, in part because I think statistics can kind of be made to say whatever you want them to, but I think some of these statistics related to divorce in our nation, in our churches, are sobering, and at times even shocking, First of all, every year in America, there are about one million couples who go through a divorce. That's one divorce every 30 seconds that a marriage covenant is shattered and the relationship is severed. 41% of first marriages end in divorce. Second and third marriages, the number is much higher. Couples are four times more likely to divorce now than they were 50 years ago. And as a nation, we are the third highest divorce rate in the world, in spite of the fact that the number of couples choosing to get married is declining dramatically. These statistics suggest to us there is something broken in our view of marriage and our societal practice of it. But I wish that I could say that's just all out there, but in here we've got it all together, right? But unfortunately, depending on what statistics you look at, many times the Christian divorce rate is not substantially different than that which we see in the rest of the world. But even as we cover these statistics initially, I think it's important to remember that behind every statistic is a story, is a couple whose relationship is broken, who once were madly in love with each other and who are sitting across the table eventually signing papers and going their separate ways. Every statistic is a story of children who begin bouncing back and forth between parents of a covenant that was broken a heart that is aching. And every one of us this morning here have been touched by divorce somehow. Maybe you yourself has been, have been divorced. Maybe your parents were divorced. You grew up in a single-parent family. Maybe you're somebody that had a Christian mentor that you looked up to and was a model of a godly marriage until suddenly it wasn't. And so we want to address this with great care, with a tenderness that recognizes that divorce is a sign and symbol of the brokenness we experience in our culture in so many different ways. But we also want to speak with clarity a warning for those marriages that might be represented this morning in which you are feeling the strain and stress, and you're beginning to wonder, maybe it'd be easier if we just threw in the towel. Maybe it'd be better for everybody if we just finally gave up on trying to go down this path. And so for those who are hurting this morning, I pray that we minister comfort. For those who are beginning to think of wandering down a path that's decidedly unbiblical, I pray that we would minister a warning that confronts you in a very real way. One other thing before we continue, I think it's important to recognize that Christians have different positions on this particular issue. So you might talk to some people that hold a much more narrow perspective that say they don't believe that divorce is ever permissible because of the nature of the covenant of marriage. That if it's designed to be permanent, that we shouldn't start making exceptions to it, but rather we ought to stand on the permanence of it. You might find other people that are the other end of the spectrum who would be more permissive in what grounds they might allow a divorce. And so even among the elder board, you're going to find people that have different positions. But what I think it's important for us to understand is that godly believers who all sit under the authority of God's word come to different conclusions and interpretations on these particular issues. And and so grace has particular positions, and I'm going to do my best to present that position as best I understand it as I'm brand new here as well but please understand that we need to be united even if we have slightly different interpretations on these particular passages. We begin in Matthew chapter 19, verse one. And Jesus has just concluded talking about resolving and reconciling difficult relationships, extending forgiveness because of how much we have been forgiven. And now he departs from Galilee. In verse one, now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. So Jesus leaves behind Galilee, which had been the center of his ministry up to this point, and begins to set his face toward Jerusalem. It's now just a few months before his crucifixion. And so he begins to travel with his disciples on this path, and there's a large crowd apparently that's going with him. And as he is going, he is healing, and he is also teaching. And as he is doing that, some Pharisees, some of the religious leaders who were there, confront him with a question. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, they ask him this. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? You see, it's clear, even in the way Matthew has phrased this, that this was not just a genuine question. They weren't saying, Jesus, we want to really honor God. Can you help us understand what his will is? No, they were trying to trap and test Jesus because they knew there were different views among the religious leaders and even among the rulers of the land. And so they were hoping that Jesus might make an enemy, might even appear to contradict Moses and that then they would use that as ammunition against him. But I also want you to notice even the way that they've asked this, the right to divorce is assumed. We know that we're allowed to divorce, but can we do it for any and every reason? or is it a little bit more narrow than that? You see, what they're doing is referencing Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse one. And so it's helpful for us to back up a little bit and understand some of the context of the Jewish law. Because in Deuteronomy 24, verse one, Moses says this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. That might sound like a little bit confusing of who's married to who, but here's the basic principle. There were times in those days that husbands would marry a wife, but then after a period of time, grow tired of her. There'd be some aspect of her that would displease him, but rather than divorce her, he would just reject and marginalize her and then go marry another wife whom he would cherish and care for, but rather than letting his wife go and be married to someone else, she would be left defenseless and destitute and socially disgraced. And so divorce was something that was regulated then in the Jewish law, saying if you're going to put your wife away, you must do so with proper grounds and in the proper way. So that if you put the certificate of divorce in her hand, that is the symbol and sign that that covenant of marriage has now been dissolved. And because of that, she is now free to go remarry someone else who can then be her protector and provider. But the Pharisees kind of latched onto that particular phrase, what is some indecency? Now there were some who were of the school of Shammai who would say it was a fairly narrow exception. That is, that there was sexual immorality of some sort, that if a wife was unfaithful, then her husband was compelled to put her away and divorce her. You think of even Joseph when they were betrothed. When he found out that Mary was expecting, it wasn't a question of, will we get married? But rather, do I publicly or privately put her away? Whereas the school of Hillel would say that divorce was permitted for almost any reason. Your wife burned your dinner? Divorce her. You find somebody that's prettier, divorce your first wife so you can go marry her instead. There was a flippancy about their rationale so that the men in the Jewish culture felt entitled to divorce their wife on almost any grounds. And so they're asking Jesus, which side are you on? Hoping that if he takes the more restrictive view, then the popular view would would rise up against him and say, that's just so restrictive, that's so legalistic. Whereas if he took the more permissive view, then some of the people who were more careful Torah observers would say this man is, is uh, somebody who permits divorce in cases that the Bible does not. But I think there's one other thing that's worth noting, and that is it tells us in verse one that Jesus had entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. This is the region that sometimes is called Perea where Herod Antipas ruled. Now that name may not mean a whole lot to you, but Herod Antipas had divorced his wife unbiblically that he could marry somebody that he found more appealing. And John the Baptist had taken issue with this and had directly confronted Herod and had lost his head as a result. And so I have to imagine that the Pharisees chose their location carefully too, hoping that Jesus would condemn the marriage and divorce of Herod and that he might also suffer a similar fate. But what I want you to notice here is that there was just this assumption that marriage was a disposable contract, that if certain conditions were met, that you could throw it away and move on and start over again, that marriage was designed for the husband to feel satisfied and fulfilled, and if there was some aspect in which it didn't, then he ought to have the prerogative to put his wife away. The truth is we see that same attitude in our culture these days, not just of a husband to a wife, but of a wife to a husband. That is that marriage is treated as a conditional contract. That is, I'll commit to you so long as you meet my needs and that the cost isn't too great. And so many couples when they get married, they say, oh, we're so in love, he makes me feel so happy, he makes me feel so special, and and I don't mind that he leaves his dirty socks on the ground I don't mind that she snores. And then they get married. And then over time, suddenly they do mind. And that conflict begins to build. And so in our culture, we see a debacle related to marriage in which the rise of no-fault divorce makes marriage less permanent even than an average contract. So when you want to get divorced, you don't even have to give a reason. You can just say, I don't feel like being married anymore. And sign a document. And legally speaking, You're released from it. And I think we as Christians have to recognize that if we're not careful, our culture will press in and permeate our churches to where rather than being alarmed and grieved when divorce is cropping up around us and even within our church, we kind of shrug our shoulders and sigh, say, well, that's too bad. I really wish more people were staying married. And in our culture, we're also gonna be pressed to accept and even celebrate Divorces, the Bible clearly calls sin. And in those moments, there's going to be great temptation to begin to broaden the grounds in which marriages might be dissolved, begin to feel more tolerant. But I think as we come to this text, we have to commit ourselves to submit to whatever Jesus is going to teach us, both about marriage as well as about divorce. Now Jesus, in typical Jesus fashion, is not going to fall into this trap. You see, the Pharisees want him to take sides, but Jesus has come to take over. He says, you are focused on the wrong thing. You're focused on the exceptions. How far, Jesus, can we go? How much, Jesus, can we get away with? It's a little like if I tell my children, don't kick your sister. They say, can I hit her then? Like, would that be permissible? Jesus is saying if you begin by focusing on the exception, you've already set yourself up for failure. Can you imagine if you were taking flying lessons to learn to be a pilot, and you sat down for your first lesson with your instructor, and they hand you a book that says how to crash land a plane. Would you feel good about the lessons that you're about to start? I wouldn't. Or if you enlisted in the military, and you lined up and your drill sergeant was there, and he said the first thing we're gonna do is learn how to retreat in battle. You'd say, I'm not sure I want to be a part of this particular army. Or if you were a banker and someone came in to, in order to take out a loan, and their very first question was, now in what circumstances am I not required to pay back this loan? You see, if we start with the exception, we've already set ourselves up for failure. But Jesus instead wants to hold high the ideal of God's design for marriage. That it's good and beautiful and Right. And so he's going to give us a biblical blueprint for marriage. And so as we unpack this, what I want you to understand is that this is the focus of the text. Yes, he's going to talk about divorce. Yes, he's going to talk about the situations in which it might be a necessary exception to the common rule. But I pray that as you go from this place, if somebody says, hey, what was the sermon about that you heard this morning? That you would say, I heard a, story, a sermon about Marriage. And God's good design for it, the way that he intended it to be, and then how we as a church should respond when that brokenness doesn't live up to what he has called it to be. So he is going to now unpack what that design is, beginning in verse 4. He answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man, let not man separate. I love it when Jesus tells the Pharisees, have you not read, are you not familiar with this in the law? He takes them back to Genesis 1, 27, Genesis 2, 24, to lay out God's blueprint for marriage. So I wanna give us just five points that we draw from what Jesus has said explicitly in these verses, that I pray would be an encouragement for us if we are married, that it would be the ideal that you recognize if you are single, and that we would reflect on how we put this into practice in our lives and in our church. First of all, we see that marriage is designed to be sacred. That is, it is designed by God in a covenant before God. Marriage isn't just a piece of paper, legally speaking. It isn't just a human arrangement or a contract, but rather it's God's idea, and it is before God we make that covenant. That's one of the reasons why we have weddings in churches, typically, is because there's a recognition that we have gathered in the presence of God to join this man and this woman. That's what it says here at the end of verse six. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You see, it is not just a disposable contract. It's not just a human arrangement in which we decide if we wanna go our separate ways, we may. But rather, we have covenanted before God, and it is designed to be an un- Conditional covenant. That means I love my wife as Christ loved the church, even when she is unlovely. That is, she submits to me as the church submits to Christ, even when I'm a lousy leader. Because God has called us to unconditionally remain in covenant, a sacred commitment before him. Secondly, he designed it to be mutual. In Matthew chapter 19, verse four, he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Here he's quoting from Genesis chapter one, verse 27, that he had made them in his own image, but different. Now, I have a revolutionary truth for you. If you were taking notes, make sure you write this down. Men and women are different. Maybe you've experienced that before. But they're different by God's design different in their roles, different in their gifting, such that as husband and wife come together, the wife has strengths that the husband does not. And in the complementarity of their relationship, she lends him her strength so that he might grow in the character of Christ. And in the same way as the leader of the family, the husband has gifts that his wife does not, that he might lend her his strength, that she might be safeguarded and grow and flourish through the washing of the water of the word. You see, in marriage, God designed husband and wife to be different and yet equal, serving different roles but a common purpose. And that's what Jesus is highlighting here from Genesis 1:27. Third, he designed it to be exclusive. That is, that for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother. In those days, the family unit was a big deal. So to leave a father and mother to create a new family was a huge new chapter that was starting They were now giving their whole allegiance and first priority to this new family unit, leaving behind their allegiance to father and mother. And so there's an exclusivity in marriage in which no other relationship or competing value takes higher priority than our spouse. So of course you might go immediately to, well, that means we shouldn't commit adultery. And of course that is true. But that also means that you can't let your work be your mistress. You can't let your hobby be be that thing that infringes on you loving your spouse the way that you're called to. You can't let your kids become your first priority that would exclude you from loving your spouse in the way that God has called you to. There is an exclusivity to this human relationship. Fourthly, there is an intimacy. Jesus says they hold fast to their wife and shall become one flesh. You see, sex is God's idea. And I think as, in churches, we need to understand that sexuality is part of God's good design and that he designed it to be the culmination, the ultimate expression of the emotional and relational intimacy that a husband and wife would enjoy. I sometimes use this illustration that if I have a fire in my fireplace in our home, it's a good and beautiful thing. It's cold outside, especially when we lived up in New England. You'd have that fire roaring and everybody would want to sit around it and the light from the fireplace would just make it such a beautiful time as a family. But if I took that fire out of the fireplace and put it on our couch, we'd be in a different boat, wouldn't we? Suddenly, this thing that was designed to give heat and light and and warmth to our home brings destruction And I fear that many times we as Christians begin to fall for the the lie of our world that it doesn't really matter in what ways we express our human sexuality as long as it feels right and natural to us. But Jesus is very clear. There are clear boundaries in which sexual intimacy was designed to operate. And when we take them out of those boundaries, it brings destruction and brokenness rather than beauty and wholeness. Finally, marriage is designed to be permanent. As the Lord brings the two together into one flesh, it says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. They're, this word literally means that they are like welded together. There is, this is the most intimate of human relationships designed to last a lifetime. And so Jesus, as he is addressing the Pharisees, say, you're starting from the wrong position. You're saying, when can we crash land the plane.'" When can we default on the loan? He says, no, let's look at the beauty and wonder of God's design for marriage, of a man and woman in a permanent and public bond committing to covenant together with one another. And so I have an illustration that I want to use that hopefully will help drive this home for us in a very real way. Because I do think there are times where we as Christians might imagine that marriage is really just a disposable Contract, and so we're going to let this plate represent the world's view of marriage—that it's a contract, essentially conditioned based on whether I feel happy and content in my marriage. Now, there's a sense in which this is hard; it's it's meant to last, right? But in the world's view, this contract is not indestructible, because let's face it, life happens, and so sometimes. We get married and we have all the intentions of staying together, but then kids come along and that's hard. And we deal with conflict with one another and that's hard. And soon, the marriage breaks. And we say, well, that wasn't the way it was supposed to be. But then we walk away. We say, I guess that's just what happens in marriage. Two people fall out of love. They walk away. They no longer are committed to one another. We're gonna let this plate represent God's covenant. Our covenant to one another. Rather than a conditional contract, it is called to be an unconditional commitment. That is, when we pledge to marry our spouse, we say, I commit to loving you for better or for worse, in sickness and health, for richer or for poorer, till death do we part, so that no matter what happens in life, we commit to the covenant because that's what God does to us. We don't give up. We don't throw it away as if it was some disposable relationship that mattered nothing to God. He holds it up to say this is an intimate, sacred, permanent design. And I want you to fight for your marriage rather than just fighting in your marriage. And so when we think about what God calls us to do and to be, I pray that we think about it as an indestructible, unconditional covenant. You thought it was gonna break, didn't you? I was hoping it wasn't going to. It made it through first service. I was just praying. Lord, this is gonna change the illustration if it breaks. But now Jesus has made marriage such a high bar that the Pharisees wanna challenge him. He's made marriage seem so permanent, so unconditional, that they say, wait, 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 are you saying divorce is never acceptable? And so that's what they come back with in verses 7 and 8. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. You see, the Pharisees still missed it. They're like, wait, what about exceptions, Jesus? He's saying, look at the rule. Look at God's good design. Yes, Moses allowed divorce. He didn't command it. Don't start trying to twist the truth of the law. But he allowed it. Because the husbands were being so negligent in their responsibilities to lead their wives. The the husbands were being so selfish in their responsibility to protect and provide for their wives. Divorce was given as a concession to your hard and selfish hearts. But don't for a moment begin to think that that is God's best. Anytime we see divorce, it is always an expression of brokenness and an indicator of sin. Sometimes primarily on one person's part, sometimes on both people's parts. Certainly as two sinners, there's always going to be sin that's mixed in there. But now Jesus goes to what you've been waiting for and that is the exception clause, right? In what cases can a divorce happen biblically? It says in verse nine, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Notice again how Jesus has phrased this. He says, in every circumstance except for one, if you get a divorce and get remarried, you're committing adultery. Now this would have been shocking for the Pharisees who held high their ability to hold fast to the Ten Commandments. And so I believe here Jesus is talking specifically about physical sexual immorality within the marriage and outside the marriage. There are different opinions as to what constitutes these grounds of pornea is the Greek word that's used here, but my understanding is that it is a physical expression of sexual immorality that then breaks the one flesh union. Just as a husband and wife are designed to come together and be united through that one flesh union, if there is sexual unfaithfulness outside of the marriage, that one flesh union is damaged because they've now joined themselves to someone else. And in those cases, I believe divorce might be permitted so that sin does not continue to abound in the context of that marriage. Now, this is consistent with what Jesus has already said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That is the one exception is that there is ongoing unrepentant sexual unfaithfulness within the marriage that the wronged or offended spouse should feel free to get a divorce and ultimately be remarried. Because they have been wronged and and their spouse has abandoned them in that way And Jesus seems to clearly make that uh, the point in Matthew 5 and Matthew chapter 19. Now, there is one other biblical concession in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that we need to note. That is, Paul says there is an exception to the no divorce, and that is, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. But if the unbelieving partner separates, then let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So the picture here is someone who is married to an unbelieving spouse. that if that unbelieving spouse is willing to remain married, 1 Peter chapter three reminds us that you are to be committed to that relationship so that that other person might come to faith through your example. But if that person refuses to remain married and abandons the marriage, then that person is now free The language here actually reflects what would have been written in Jewish divorce contracts, that is, they are free to remarry. And so I believe in both of these cases, both sexual immorality and the cases of abandonment, the wronged spouse might remarry, biblically speaking. Now, it bears the question, well, what about abuse? And we certainly don't have time to be able to unpack all of that this morning, but I do think there are rare cases in which abuse would fit this category of being abandoned by an unbeliever. And each situation is so difficult and unique that I don't wanna make blanket statements, but what I would encourage you is that if you are dealing with a situation that you believe may end up being a biblical divorce, come talk to one of the elders here at the church. I pray that you will find counsel that is both clear and compassionate from God's word and there are probably a whole lot of other questions that you're thinking of. Well, what about this? And what about this situation? And what about this unique circumstance? Talk to your ABF leaders. Talk to your small group leaders. Begin to discuss those things because it's there that we press this truth into the practical realities of everyday life. There's one other thing we need to note. That is that just because these are grounds for divorce does not mean they are the inevitable result, inevitably result in divorce. There are times where a couple might deal with sexual infidelity, but God can bring healing. God can restore what was broken. I've had times as a pastor where I've sat down with a couple that to be honest, from a worldly perspective, it didn't look like there was much hope. They had drawn up their sides, they were volleying accusations and disappointments at one another. One maybe was choosing a hardness of heart and pursuing sexual immorality, but by God's grace, as we began to meet and and sat under the truth of God's word and the spirit of God moved, those hard hearts began to soften. The gospel began to permeate those hearts to where they realized how much they themselves had been forgiven. So rather than allowing the seeds of bitterness to grow in their heart, they began to ask for forgiveness They began to extend grace and soon there was forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration of the unity that God intended in that marriage. One of my favorite stories from our previous church was we had a couple that had gotten divorced at a young age. Neither one of them were Christians. And God individually did a work in their lives to where they both trusted in Christ. And as they began to learn and understand God's word, they came to realize that they had been wrong to divorce one another, and so they got remarried to each other, and they still are married to this day. And so if you are somebody who has gone through, maybe you're sitting here and and this is raw and it is real for you, I want to to express to you that, that our hearts are with you in this pain and that we desire to walk with you in attempts to bring healing and restoration there's nothing that we want to do to inflict more pain or shame or any of those types of things. Because the reality is, we are first of all called to pursue reconciliation. So just know that if you ever want to come and sit and talk with me about why you feel like you ought to get a divorce, the first thing we're going to talk about is God's design for marriage and what efforts you've made to reconcile in that marriage. But the truth is, sometimes every effort has been made, and there are still biblical grounds. And that divorce has to happen. And so maybe you're here this morning and you have have experienced a biblical divorce. You've been the offended party. And you're that person who feels like you bear a scarlet letter D on your chest. You need to know that as the offended party, you were the wronged one. Not the innocent one. There's not a one of us that were innocent. But that you are called by God to be faithful. And I trust that through this church's ministry that you have done just that. And this is especially important to me because my wife, Katie, her dad left when she was young, about six years old, began to pursue a pattern of sexual immorality. Was an angry, selfish man. Scary for a young six-year-old girl to deal with in the home. And her mom, being a godly woman, desired to seek godly counsel. And so she went to their local pastor and explained the situation, the choices her husband was making, and sought counsel. And year after year, he gave the counsel, you need to just keep being submissive to your husband. You just need to to focus on what you're doing wrong. Because after all, he would say, if you be a Sarah, then he'll be an Abraham. It was only after a number of years that she found another pastor who began to counsel her from God's word began to show her that there were clearly grounds and that in fact, divorce was God's provision in this very type of situation to protect her and her children from her husband's destructive choices. And so he ended, they ended up getting a divorce. And I believe that was a part of God's protection of my wife to where she could then experience God as her heavenly father and be protected from any other number of different dangers that she might have experienced. And so if you're here this morning and you've been through a biblical divorce, my prayer is that grace is a place where you can find hope and healing and acceptance. Where you feel loved, not marginalized, but cared for. That just as God is is the father and husband that you need, that we would be the church family that fills the role of protector and provider that your husband should have. That you wouldn't feel shame or guilt, but rather love and grace. But there's another group I wanna talk to for a moment you may very well be someone who was the offending party in a divorce. Maybe you sought an unbiblical divorce or maybe you were the cause of a biblical divorce. And a message like this begins to pick at that scab and cause it to hurt all over again. You feel ashamed and condemned like you're, you're damaged goods and that you're never going to be good enough. I want to remind you that, first, that Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you have confessed that sin and brought it to the foot of the cross, then leave it there. For Jesus is enough. Now there may very well be lingering consequences, but shame and marginalization and guilt should not be one of them. For we are all guilty before God and we have all been forgiven far more than we could ever imagine. So Jesus does give this exception, but he is incredibly narrow in the exception. He doesn't say, and there's a lot of other reasons that I haven't mentioned here. And maybe you've experienced this before where people come to you and say, I think my situation is so unique. My circumstances are so different that I'm the exception to what Jesus has said here. If you picked up one of the outlines on the back, you'll see 10 common excuses that people give for pursuing an unbiblical divorce. I encourage you, as you have time, look that over. Because in the moment, if we aren't prepared Our heart goes out to those who are hurting. I wanna speak to compassion to those who are dealing with difficult marriages, but I want to also speak truth. Let me give you a couple of examples of loopholes that people might explain. First of all, oh, we were so young, we didn't even know what we were doing. We were married on paper, but we were never really married in our hearts. You heard that one before? Oh, God wouldn't want me to be this unhappy. God desires for me to have abundant life and right now I have a miserable life and so I need to do whatever I can to pursue happy. Or he isn't meeting my needs and he refuses to change. I've tried and tried and I'm just weary of trying and I'm ready to give up. I want to suggest to you, if you're talking to somebody who is already looking for loopholes to the grounds for biblical divorce, their heart is already in the wrong place. They've already made up their mind that what they deserve And what they need is to be released from their marriage rather than to be committed to it. And so I just want to pause for a moment because I know that even as we state these things in fairly categorical statements, that each situation is personal to you. And there might be something that I'm saying here that that may cause hurt or may make you say, but what about? Can I encourage you, come talk to me or one of the elders after the service. We want to, to dialogue and not just monologue on this topic Because what God's word has to say points us to truth and to life. And we want it to be done in the context of grace. Well, the disciples were shocked at what Jesus has just said. In fact, they said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, then it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So Jesus has said, marriage is the rule, not the exception. Divorce should be allowed only in very limited circumstances, and the disciples say, what? Well, if that's the case, if there's not an easy escape clause, then nobody should get married. It's better to just remain single. I want you to notice just how prevalent and and entitled it seems like the idea of divorce had become in that culture. But Jesus says that's true. For some people it is better for them not to marry, for them to pursue a life of singleness. But he says that's not for everyone. There's a special grace that God gives to some people to live their life of singleness, and that's what he's talking about here when he talks about eunuchs, not physically eunuchs necessarily, but those who have committed themselves to singleness with purity and contentment. And so he says God sometimes does give special grace to some people, the gift of singleness, if you will, to live with that singularity of purpose, just as Jesus did, just as Paul did. And I know some of you college students are saying, please don't give me that gift, God. Please don't give me that gift. Please, please, please. But here's what I want you to understand. Singleness is hard. And marriage is hard. And God's grace is essential for both. And so if you're a single person this morning, I want you to lean into that singleness recognizing that in the struggle and the strain to cling to contentment in Christ alone, to walk in purity, that God's grace is sufficient for you and that this season presents unique opportunities where if you only focus on what isn't, you will miss what is. If you're a married person this morning, I want to encourage you to remember that God gives you grace and strength to persevere in the covenant of your marriage. So don't give up. Keep pressing on. Keep holding high the ideal of marriage because it is there that you will discover what God has to teach you. You will be reminded of his great grace in your life as you then extend that grace to others. Well, as you can see, this morning we are celebrating the Lord's Supper. And this is not just simply a memorial This is not something to just help us remember something that has happened in the past. It is also designed to reinforce the truth of the gospel into our hearts, to drive it deep into the practical realities of each and every day because we need God's grace and it doesn't just come in order to deal with the effects of our sin, the the reality and the guilt of it, but also the brokenness that comes from it. And there's not a one of us here this morning that have strayed too far or gone too, down, too far down the road of sin that we can't be rescued and redeemed. I told you about my wife's dad who left when she was young. As he grew older, by God's grace, he got involved in a Bible-teaching church. And by God's grace, his heart began to soften. He passed away three months ago. But to best my knowledge, he had trusted in Christ. And so in spite of the brokenness that he left behind because of his choices, I believe that we will see him in heaven because of God's grace. And so when we come to this table, that's what we're doing. We're reminding ourselves and reinforcing the gospel in our lives that if we've been divorced, it's God's grace that heals us and deals with the sin that is in our heart, whether it's bitterness toward the way we've been offended or hardness of heart in the ways that we have wandered. If we're married and we're struggling and feeling like we're just barely holding on, it's God's grace that enables us to love our spouse the way that we need to because we can't do it on our own. Or maybe you're living in a marriage that that isn't on the brink, but you're strained and struggling in certain ways. You hold high the reminder that God has unconditionally committed himself to you and so you remind yourself that love is not a feeling, it is a commitment. And you lean in to loving your spouse well. Or if you're single this morning and you're struggling with that contentment and purity that comes with this season, that as we take the bread and drink the cup, you remember that Jesus is enough for every temptation and struggle we might deal with. And even as we talk about marriage being an unconditional covenant, I want to remind you that when Jesus took the bread and then took the cup at the Last Supper, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. You see, he has saved us by his grace, not because of our works. And that means that we are safe and secure, and nothing that we can do can make God love us anymore, and nothing we can do would make God love us any less. And so as our deacons come forward to help me distribute the elements, I want to encourage you to spend the next few moments to just be reflecting on God's, grace. God's word reminds us in 1st Corinthians chapter 11 beginning in verse 26 that as often as we eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup in just a moment we're going to, to sing some songs as we reflect on the truth of God, but I pray that you begin by examining your heart, confessing any known sin, and marveling at the wondrous grace of God. Let me pray for us before we distribute the elements. Heavenly Father, we come to you as unworthy and undeserving people, marveling at the majesty of your grace. God, we are wrapped in the robes of the righteousness of Christ. And it is on the basis of his sacrifice that we can draw near to you to find help in our time of need, to find healing from the brokenness that often comes even from our own choices, and to find community that is rooted in your spirit. And so, God, I pray that as we take the bread, we would remember the body of Christ given for us, the full weight of our sin poured out on him as the innocent one bore the wrath so that the guilty ones could go free. And that as we take the cup, we would be reminded that the new covenant in your blood is not based on our performance. It does not ebb and flow based on how good we can be, but is rooted in the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ. As we are washed in his blood, we are forgiven and we are free. So God, we thank you for your love, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.